It's nearly impossible to read the news nowadays without some kind of story related to geopolitics showing up in your newsfeed. There's headlines like, Chinese tech investors flee Silicon Valley, or why autocrats love emergencies, or even America's electric grid has a vulnerable backdoor and Russia walked through it. There's no question we are inundated by breaking developments and competing narratives on a daily, if not hourly, basis. The challenge? Separating the signal from the noise. Identifying what matters and what's coming next. On today's episode of The Bid, we'll learn how to do just that. We're kicking off the first of our bi-monthly series on geopolitics from the BlackRock Investment Institute. Every other month, we'll discuss different topics at the intersection of markets, politics, and policymaking. Today, we'll speak to Tom Donilon, chairman of the BlackRock Investment Institute and former U.S. National Security Advisor, to recap the World Economic Forum in Davos and get his thoughts on how geopolitics will shape the year ahead. I'm your host, Catherine Kress. We hope you enjoy. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Catherine, thanks for doing this today. It's great to be here. You just got back from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, with attendees ranging from business executives and political leaders to even Will I Am and Bono. What resonated with you the most this year? Well, I can report to my colleagues at BlackRock that I didn't spend a lot of time with Will I Am and Bono, but some things did strike me. One is a focus on a slowing global economy, the still growing economy. Obviously, as there is every year at Davos, it was focused on geopolitical risk. Mm-hmm. Principally, I think in this session, the state of U.S.-China relations, which were really front and center at the conference, and even more particularly with respect to the U.S. and China, where we are in terms of technology competition. It was a very big focus in a lot of the panels and discussions there. It's interesting. There were fewer political leaders there this year than there had been in the past. I think that reflects a couple of things, including a number of difficult situations that political leaders face around the world, and also, I think, the rise of populism. There was a particular interest, I noted, also in sustainable investing. We had a very good event on sustainable investing with a terrific turnout. And I think there was a lot of interest in Larry's latest CEO letter, most especially the focus on corporate purpose and the broadening out of the stakeholders to which uh, corporations need to attend. You mentioned populism, U.S.-China relations. It's very clear from your comments that geopolitics will continue to cast a shadow over markets in 2019. And we can't really talk about geopolitics without a discussion of the U.S., We have a very different type of administration in the White House. Trade has moved to the center of U.S. foreign policy. And with the midterm elections behind us, we have a divided government. Republicans are in control of the Senate, and Democrats have taken control of the House. Let's start with our domestic outlook. What's one word you would use to describe U.S. politics in 2019? Well, it's hard to do it in one word, but I think it would be loud, boisterous. I think we'll have a very high level of political combat in the United States over the next couple of years. You know, as you mentioned, we have a different kind of administration in the United States in 2016. President Trump promised a different kind of administration in the 2016 election. It's a different foreign policy approach, really a departure from a number of the approaches the United States has taken over the last few decades. One thing that will continue, I think, to be front and center in U.S. foreign policy will be trade. And we've seen that, I think, over the last year. You you mentioned the midterm elections. The midterm elections in the United States this year had tremendous energy. The turnout was the highest it had been in the United States in a midterm election since 1914. 
we had a very diverse set of candidates elected to the Congress, the largest number of women in the history of the Congress. 106 women are now in the Congress coming out of the midterm elections. And a statistic that I love is that in the class that's just starting in the Congress this January, this year, this month, 22 were from the military of the CIA. So we have a really kind of wow. a core of national security veterans in the Congress coming out of the midterm elections. As you said, the midterm elections brought us divided government. And divided government will make legislating more difficult, I think, combined with the kind of the deep polarization that we have in the United States. I think you'll also see a lot of investigations with the Democrats coming back into control of the Congress. You'll see them move to, I think, oversight hearings and investigations going forward. And I think also, essentially, the 2020 campaign has begun already. We have, I think, seven or so announced candidates already with a dozen or more to come on the Democratic side. And we'll see what happens on the Republican side, whether or not President Trump draws any primary challenges. The bottom line here, though, to answer your question directly, mm -hmm. is that I think we're in for a year or two of quite loud political debate and combat. And I think for investors, it's going to be a challenge to really try to separate the signal from the noise as we determine which of these things actually affects markets. So we clearly have an interesting year ahead of us in the U.S., and in my mind, there's no doubt that's going to have a global impact. In fact, the International Monetary Fund just lowered its global growth forecast for the second time in six months, highlighting U.S. trade tensions as one of the key risks to its outlook. Do you think these trade tensions are going to resolve anytime soon? Trade really is at the core of the Trump administration's approach to international relations and foreign policy. And if you think back on a 2017 was a year of mainly rhetoric around trade. Mm -hmm. 2018, however, saw quite a bit of action on the trade front. Indeed, at the beginning of 2018, we had trade disputes underway in most of the regions of the world. Now, during the course of the year, a number of these were either resolved or put in the frameworks or discussions, I think, in order to clear the decks to focus on China. But that doesn't mean they've all gone away. So we have underway trade negotiations under a framework with the EU. We've begun trade negotiation for a free trade agreement with Japan. We did come to agreement with Canada and Mexico in the United States-Mexican-Canadian Free Trade Agreement, New Accord, and the follow-on to NAFTA. That still, though, has to be approved by the U.S. Congress. That's going to be a bit of a battle because, again, we've had this change in the makeup of the Congress. And it's not clear at this point whether that can get ratified. It'll be a high priority for the president to see it ratified. We did have one trade agreement finalized with the Koreans. So we have mm -hmm. ongoing trade issues around the world but none more important than we have underway with China, where we are in the midst of a 90-day negotiating period between the United States and China, trying to come to some sort of set of accords, understandings, and framework to go forward. So I think that trade is going to remain really, as I said, really at the center of U.S. foreign policy. And even where we may have made some progress, there are still some standing issues, but none more important than the U.S.-China trade negotiations. And we still have, by the way, a number of tariffs on allies and partners around the world, including the steel and aluminum tariffs are mm -hmm. still in place. And we have a discussion underway about whether to put tariffs on auto and auto parts, right? And that report is due sometime in February. Tom, the centrality of the U.S.-China relationship has come up a couple times now in your remarks. We've talked about it mostly in the context of trade, but can you talk about the U.S.-China relationship more generally and how you see it evolving over time? Yeah, Catherine, clearly the most important relationship in the world right now, and I'd say a couple of things about it. One is that the U.S.-China relationship has entered a new, more competitive phase. And that competitive phase involves not just economics, which are front and center right now, but really a whole range of issues, including military, even ideological, political issues, where China and the United States really are, as I said, in a much more competitive posture than they have been in before. 
you know, this shift, I think, reflects a lot of things, including a fundamental rethink that's underway, I think, in the United States around the nature of U.S.-China relations. And that fundamental rethink is bipartisan. And that has really kind of moved the consensus here, I think, in the United States with respect to China. And so we may be seeing a shift from what had been the United States approach, which had really been strategic engagement and cooperation, really since Richard Nixon went to China in the February of 1972, to a much more strategic, competitive approach by the United States. I see a similar set of rethinks and approaches underway in China as well. So it's going to be a challenging time in U.S.-China relations with a lot of responsibility on the leaders of both sides to manage it. One of the issues we spent a lot of time talking about, trying to understand and disentangle, is the rise of populism and global anti-establishment sentiment. History shows us that populist movements have typical life cycles with similar drivers and more or less predictable outcomes. This time, though, feels very different. Would you agree with that? I would. Well, first of all, make a couple of points. I think one is that we are not at peak populism, I don't think, in the world today. You know, there had been some thought after the 2017 victory of Macron in France that we may have reached peak populism, that the center may have held moving forward. But, you know, the Macron victory was also a, you know, quite a dramatic pushback on the tradition of the parties that had really been in the majority and running France since World War II. So in and of itself, it was a pretty big pushback on the establishment. But I think what we see is populism still rising. You see it rising in Europe. So we're not at peak populism. And even where populist parties haven't taken control of the government, they also really are driving the discussion in a lot of places around the world. And as you said, typically, populism is seen as part of a cyclical economics kind of process, right? I think we're seeing something different here, and it may be more structural. It is broad. It's simultaneous in a number of countries around the world, including some of the large economies in the world. It reflects not just economics, but really rapid change in culture and demographics and society and, most important, technology. A number of the things that are driving it are still present in the world, including concerns about inequality and the performance of government. As I said, it's also, it really is emboldened and enabled by technology. And the questions really are these. It's also taken place during a pretty benign economic environment. What happens when we have the inevitable downturn? And then if you have these continued populist pressures, what happens to the ability of governments, right, and policymakers to deal with the next inevitable downturn? So I think it's a really interesting question, an important one for investors to focus on. Historically, in places where you've had populist governments, have had impacts on economic approaches. But I think this may not be cyclical. I think this may be more long-lasting and structural. So to summarize in terms of some of the key geopolitical risks we think will loom over markets in 2019, We're talking about trade, U.S.-China relations, as well as this anti-establishment populist wave you just spoke about. What are some of the key risks we're not talking about? That's interesting. I don't think we're talking enough about the investment needs in society and specifically the challenge presented by technology, which will bring a tremendous amount of benefits, but also challenges particularly in the labor markets. And I don't know that we have had enough discussion about how we as societies are going to deal with the impact. We're going to have less people needed to accomplish specific tasks. You know, you've seen the number of studies which show significant percentage of current activities or tasks or jobs could be eliminated by technology, particularly artificial intelligence and robotics. And so I don't think that we have really come to grips with 
what the impact is going to be, and what the response needs to be to deal with these labor market impacts. There was some discussion about it at Davos, but if you look at the major economies in the world, I don't think we're having the kind of in-depth discussion. Who's responsible for dealing with this? How do you divide the responsibility between governments and companies for this? You know, we've had some discussion, for example, about guaranteed incomes. What's the impact on really kind of the identity impact that people have? People have so much identity and psychological investment in their jobs and what they do every day. And we're in for a pretty rapid change. So I don't think we're having enough conversation about what investments are required in order to deal with this challenge. Tom, you've had a decades-long career in government. So to close, I'd like to ask you a few more personal questions about that. Okay. How many presidents have you worked for and starting when? I've worked for three presidents of the United States beginning in June of 1977. How old were you? I was 22 years old. I started working in June of 1977 for President Carter, really the week I got out of college. Who was your favorite to work with? My favorite president to work yes. with? Yes. Yeah. Well, as I said, I've worked for three U.S. presidents since 1977. President Carter, where I worked in the White House and then did his campaign for re-election. I worked for President Clinton. I prepared him for his debates in 1992 and then was the chief of staff of the State Department during President Clinton's term. And then I worked for President Obama beginning in 2009, where I did his debate preparation in the campaign in 2008, and then was Deputy National Security Advisor and the National Security Advisor for President Obama. So I've been exceedingly fortunate to work for three U.S. presidents during the course of my career. Now, to go to your question, which you thought I was trying to avoid, <laughs> right, you know, the answer to your question, Catherine, is this. One of the keys to have the privilege of working closely with three U.S. presidents is not to answer the question that you asked. <laughs> yeah. Very good answer. Okay, how about another one? Okay. How many members of your family have you worked with at the mm -hmm. same time in the same office? Good question. In the first Obama term, I worked in the Obama White House in the West Wing, and I worked within 20 feet of my younger brother, Michael, wow. who was the assistant to the vice president, and within probably 20 yards of my wife, Kathy Russell, who then was working for Mrs. Biden, and then she went on to be the United States Ambassador for Women's and Girls Issues at the State Department. But during that first term of the Obama administration, I was working in the same office with my wife and with my younger brother. I think the closest I've come to is going to school with two of my siblings, <laughs> but I haven't been so fortunate as to work with that many members yeah. of my family. Public service really is you know, kind of a family project, and it mm -hmm. was, we worked quite closely during that great period. It was really terrific. That's great. So the final question I have for you is, you have had a very long history in foreign policy. Who is the most impressive foreign leader you've met in that oh, experience? That's a good question. You know, I'd have to say Prime Minister Yitzhak Ravine of Israel, who was tragically assassinated in the mid-1990s. I was deeply involved in the Middle East peace process, Catherine, during the early 1990s and afterwards. Ravine was really one of the most impressive leaders I had ever seen. He was a quiet man. Mm -hmm. A modest man, you know, if you went to visit him at his home outside of Tel Aviv, it was a modest apartment, tremendously strong, great moral authority. And despite his kind of overt modesty when he came into the room, everybody knew they were in the presence of greatness. And I've worked with many foreign leaders over the course of my career, including as a presidential envoy to a number of them. But, you know, all these years, that's the person who really just deeply impressed me the most. I knew I was really kind of in the presence of a great person. That's an inspiring note to end on. So, Tom, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. I really appreciate it. Catherine, great to do it. Thanks a lot.
To our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about our views on geopolitics, search for the BlackRock Geopolitical Risk Dashboard on our website. We'll see you next time on The Bid. This material is intended for U.S. distribution only. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of February 2019 and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. Investment involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Copyright 2019, BlackRock, Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock, Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.